Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels once again. This is Gospels part 131. Last week we were still within the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is pouring out his heart and his soul to his Father in Heaven concerning this upcoming arrest and trial and suffering and death that he is getting (laughs) ready to walk into knowingly and pleading before God to, if there's a way for him to get out of that, that that would be desirable. But ultimately (laughs) he, he, he relents in terms of wanting to choose his own will and surrendering to God's will in this situation and it's a a self-denying nature that's going on with for the sake of other others for the benefit of others for the welfare and the salvation and ultimately the, the the life of all humanity and creation itself yeah um and while this is going on this theme continues with Jesus going to this more private place to pray more individually with God and then coming back to his disciples checking up on them and they're they're sleeping they're they're not praying for themselves that Jesus advocated for them to do that they would not fall away uh, concerning these traumatic events that are about to come just I mean minutes hours whatever uh, and this goes on right. for three times which is interesting parallel we almost have bookends between the beginning of his ministry getting tempted three times in the desert by the enemy and here in the in the garden he's being tested three times with his own will so to speak um and we ended the week kind of on a a good note in terms of like not being a cliffhanger in terms of he he tells his disciples like take your sleep you know at another time my betrayer is at hand and we see in John, the Gospel of John, where Judas and you have officers of the law and some Pharisees that are coming, and now we're about to have this interaction between Jesus and the betrayer. Yeah, it's like probably some movies or TV shows we've seen. We've got two separate storylines going that are now about to meet and become just one separate storyline. So Judas is showing up. Well, let's let's take a look at it. We're, we're starting now. We're in Matthew chapter twenty-six, verse forty-seven, which is like Mark chapter fourteen, verse forty-three, and Luke chapter twenty-two, verse forty-seven. I'm going to read from Matthew. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Okay, so just to kind of connect back, the last thing that Jesus was saying was, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while, so while he was still speaking, Judas shows up. And I don't know if you remember, Samuel, John had called it a band of soldiers 
and some officers, and we talked about, hey, the word underneath that was, what was the word underneath that? Cohort. Cohort. That was it. (laughs) Which is weird, because I use that word all the time, so I don't know why I would forget it. But yeah, uh, they had a cohort, and uh, we talked about how, look, technically that meant 600, but we didn't. You know, we weren't suggesting that we anybody should look at it, take it literally like that. But it did suggest that it was going to be a substantial number. And so here you see, well, I didn't read them, but Mark and Luke both call it a crowd. And Matthew goes further and even calls it a great crowd. So whatever your mental image is, thinking Judas shows up with, you know, a handful of guys or whatever... I think that's just really, really wrong. So you need a different image there. And just to point it out, Judas was actually leading them, guiding them, whatever you want to call it. Now, another interesting thing, we know now that the weapons very specifically were swords and clubs. So, I mean, it's kind of obvious. These soldiers, these officers, whatever, they expected trouble, I guess, whether that was from Jesus or maybe from the disciples or maybe they imagined there there would be some sort of crowd, you know, on Jesus' side against them. I, I don't know. They came, you know, in the first century equivalent, loaded for bear. And again, uh, just to note, it says that they are from the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people, just depending on which uh, gospel you're reading. Now, the the chief priests, okay, that's probably going to be mostly sad, you see, kind of sect relationship there. The scribes, uh, that's a little different. You might actually even find that that leans Pharisee on, on that front, so that's a thing. And then the elders of the people, that one's uh, much more ambiguous. That's probably a mix of every sect or, you know, something, whatever. Uh, but it's just to point out, it wasn't the actual, at least so far, where we don't get the, the impression that it is the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, but it's people sent by them. It's from them. But maybe a little later, it'll get a little, little more gray, a little more fuzzy. So we'll see about that. But anyway, this is all just narrative. Samuel, got anything there? Not much other than just saying this detail that you pointed out with these people coming with these weapons loaded for bear. And it's a rhetorical question, but can you think of any time within Jesus' ministry where there is any sort of aggression or hostility that that he, as the leading rabbi in the group or his disciples, showed in their three years together like that would warrant these weapons like i just <laughs> it, no. there's no connection to me in terms of how they conducted themselves uh, in yeah, comparison I, to what they're bringing here now yeah yeah for sure their particular behavior and no i i can't think of anything i think it it must go back to the idea that well he was popular Whatever it is we do, we might make the people mad. It's during a festival. There's a lot of people around. You know, they don't want to stir something up, and all of a sudden, you know, there are tens or even hundreds of people who are trying to stick up for him. And so it turns into a big mess. That's the only thing I can think of. I don't know. But here they are, 
And let's keep going. We would move to Matthew chapter 26, verses 48 and 49. This coincides with Mark chapter 14, verses 44 and 45. And, well, Luke, I'm going to pull just the tiny little bit off of chapter 22, verse 47, and then all of verse 48. I'm going to read from Mark and also a little bit here from Luke. I think they add some interesting things. So Mark says, Now, The betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Now Luke adds an interesting little thing at the end of his, and his verse 48 says, But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So it's a very interesting little personal interaction there. So again, we're getting a little more of the backstory here, Samuel. Judas had worked it out ahead of time with his new crowd or his crew, whatever we want to call them, that he's going to identify Jesus with a kiss. Now, just to say it, for a man to greet another man with a kiss, oh, this was this is very typical, very normal, culturally, it was just, that was the thing that you did. In fact, uh, just to be even more clear about it, this kind of kiss for a greeting, or possibly as a departure, whatever, uh, it did not cross gender lines. So this is not something that would have happened between a man and a woman, that was taboo, but between men and men, or women and women, just as a way of greeting or uh, a goodbye or whatever, this was the normal thing. And it continues today in a number of cultures. You've probably seen it, I don't know, maybe in movies or maybe when you were traveling or something like that. But a kiss on the cheek or maybe a kiss on both cheeks, whatever, still, it's a standard greeting or a way of, of saying goodbye. So It's very prevalent in Italian culture, it seems like. Right, yeah, yeah, you see that a lot in movies, yeah, yeah. So there you go. It's it's a normal thing. That's all they're doing here. Now, the thing, though, is Judas has chosen this cultural tradition as his method of betrayal. And this is very interesting, Samuel, because he wasn't the first to do so. If you go back... You read in Genesis chapter 27, verses 26 and 27, this is where Jacob is trying to trick Isaac. One of the things that happens is that Jacob kisses him. And, you know, I think think Isaac smells the clothes or something like that. And so that's all part of the trickery. So maybe that's the first one, right? Uh, But there are more. Uh, When Absalom was in the process of, you know, stealing the hearts of the men of Israel— uh, you can read about that back in Second Samuel, specifically chapter 15, verse 5. But, you know, there's kind of a whole story around there. That was another one. There's the adulteress that's being portrayed in Proverbs. Uh, go back in chapter 7. Specifically, you could look at verse 13. So there's, uh, again, the kiss is, using to, is being used to betray. Slightly different. Uh, it, there, there's the talk of like the excessive and insincere kisses of an enemy versus the wounds of a true friend, right? Uh, but that's in Proverbs chapter 27, uh, verse 6, specifically. There was another one, Joab was deceiving Amasa. This is 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 9. So the point is, 
This is an ugly tradition that actually shows up all through the scriptures. But Judas here, I think we have to say he has found a way to top them all. And the text, I I read it this way, and and I don't know, it's got an exclamation point there. So I guess somebody wants us to read it that way. The text is suggesting that Judas gives a heartfelt and joyful greeting of his rabbi, his master. And then he follows it with a kiss. And it's just, when you know what's happening, it's disgusting. And it makes me think of Dexter's Laboratory, that cartoon. And all I can think of is, vile fiend! You know? (laughs) So, it's... Anyway. I thought you would reference Dexter. That is awesome. He is awesome. I loved him. So... Yeah, so this is what's going on, and then that's, I think, what sort of adds to the interesting bit that Luke adds, where he says, like, Luke has Jesus calling him out on what he is doing just to his face. Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And, you know, I mean, you might think the fact that Judas is betraying him, come on, that's bad enough. What does it matter how he does it? But... I think it really gets at what we've seen, the history in Scripture and what whatever. I, I think it's showing the depth of this betrayal, just how low Judas is willing to go or how low he's fallen, whatever you want to call it. So anyway, there's that little bit. Samuel? Yeah, I do have a question, and maybe I'm looking at this in a way that needs correction, but I find it very interesting that Judas is needing to identify Jesus to these people in this scenario. Like, I wouldn't you think that how Jesus's ministry has spread over these past three years within Jerusalem and the surrounding villages and towns, cities, that he would have been recognizable? Like, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, like. I don't know. He's he's. They have traveled enough places and have spoken and been around enough crowds that I don't know. Uh, do you do you see what I'm wrestling with right here? Oh, like, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's it, it does seem kind of crazy that they needed someone to specifically identify him. But you know, we've talked about a couple different things. We thought that well. It isn't impossible that there were some actual Jewish soldiers in this little crowd. So they, out of, you know, when you start thinking of soldiery, (laughs) they might have recognized him maybe a little quicker and easier. If this was only Roman soldiers or primarily Roman soldiers or whatever, I don't know. Maybe we could imagine how, look, in their everyday life, are they going to run across this Jesus guy? Well, maybe not. So the fact that it isn't the actual chief priests or elders or whoever those, and it's just the, I don't know, maybe that's why. I, but yeah, I I totally get you. But whatever, it's in the story. I, Apparently it was needed. I had a, I just had a weird cross-reference pop into my brain, and I have no idea whether it actually relates, but it made me think of in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 10, where it says, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is, uh, that's a very Pauline way 
of relating to Scripture. So, yeah, I like that. That's good. Anything else? Nope. All right. Well, now, I think you're going to enjoy this little bit, Samuel, especially as we, the very first thing that we uh, read next, but good part of the story. So it, we, believe it or not, back to John chapter 18, verses four through nine. It says this, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Now, I know that this came up in our recent conversation, Samuel, but you know, as a general rule, many people argue about, you know, how much did Jesus know and how much did he know at a particular point in time versus a different point in time and all that kind of stuff. But just generally speaking, during his time on earth, how much did Jesus really know? Some people think he, he just knew everything. Why? Because he was God. Bad, bad way of looking at it. Some people think uh, he knew almost nothing and he was only, you know, discovering things as he went. And then those stories that we have where it seems that he does know more, it's because the Holy Spirit was telling him. And that, was, that wasn't his everyday norm. Those were kind of special. And that's why they're in the scripture. Okay. And then, of course, there's anything in between. I don't know what the answer is. I wasn't there. I didn't know him, whatever. But people argue about it. There are times, just to say it out loud, he, he does seem to have great insight and knowledge, not just of what other people might be thinking or feeling or whatever, but things that are coming and all that kind of stuff. But we have to be honest as we're reading through, there are also times when he seems, I would just say, as unaware as any of the rest of us or the rest of them. Now, at this moment, though, we can actually know something for certain. John tells us that Jesus knew, he knows now, all that's going to happen to him. So when you relate that back, I mean, think about it. Only moments ago, he's agonizing in the garden. I mean, sweat pumping out of him like blood. I just want to throw that in there again. Pleading with God to take this cup from him. But now all of a sudden, he knows everything that is going to happen to him. So you got to think, Samuel, somewhere along in those prayers, remember how you were asking, did he get his answer, whatever? Somewhere in here, I think you just got to go, okay, Jesus got his answer. He just, he absolutely knew God was not taking the cup. This was going to happen. That was going to happen, whatever. He knows. And having that knowledge, he walks away from this prayer and this pleading, negotiating, whatever you want to call it or think of it, He's now boldly walking into, let's just call it, his destiny. In this case, he boldly steps forward. He's, he's 
stepping toward this weaponized crowd of, you know, probably professional soldiers, and he just asks them outright, who do you seek? And they say, you know, him. I mean, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus, without hesitation, he lets them know that he is who they're searching for, the guy they're looking for. And this is great, Samuel. This is kind of like the final one. I am he. This is the final I am statement in the book of John, or depending on who's counting them or whatever. But this is like the big finish. I am he. It's another way John is trying to let the reader know this Jesus he is God in some way. God is one, and yet somehow this Jesus was him. It's, it's a cool, cool thing. This is the ultimate culminating identification of Jesus as Messiah, uh, Jesus as God. It's good stuff. For the reader, this is a big moment, but it's not just for the reader. Because John tells us, okay, first of all, for the imagery, right? Get it in your head. Judas is standing with the crowd that he had brought. You know, it's, he's kind of playing that dance with the one that brung you sort of thing, right? He's, he's hanging with them. And when Jesus says, I am he, the whole crowd draws back. They fall to the ground. And you got to think, presumably, this is including Judas. And Samuel, we don't know what it is. There's something about that moment, those words. It bowled them over. And it reminds me of a few different places. Well, I'll have you read some things. This one is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. I just snipped a part out. Read that. The Lord will destroy by the breath of his mouth. Yeah. Now, in this case, he didn't destroy them, but you see that just the power of his words, his breath, right? Here's another one. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. Read that, Samuel. So it's like the second half or whatever. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Yeah, it's that same imagery. Now, again, he didn't kill them, but you, you see that power. It's kind of like a precursor or a foreshadow. Here's another one, slightly different take. This is from Psalm 27, verse 2. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Yeah. So, so the first couple that was talking about that breath or that voice, this one is talking about, you know, very explicitly, they stumble and fall. And that's, that's exactly what's going on here. So, it, I mean, it's really cool imagery. But after he says it, they... I've, I've, I've got another uh, do it. image. Um, it might yes. not be as <laughs> severe as... I don't have any ref, like biblical references off the top of my head other than oh, oh. this is just a, a Marty Solomon teaching oh, okay. but um man within jewish culture and judaism itself the whole relationship between god and the nation of israel starts and is founded on the story of genesis and god making that initial promise with abraham oh. before the covenant before the law everything and there is this word that gets it's, it's like a refrain if you go back and read the story of, you know, when God initially meets with Abraham until like kind of like the climactic point in Abraham's story with the, the binding of Isaac at the top of the mountain. Like there's there's constant interactions between God calling 
Abraham, Abraham calling God, and this phrase yeah. gets used, here I am. And it, yeah. you may find that like familiar because we say that at the beginning of every episode, but it's this right. Hebrew phrase called Hanuni, and it, it the language in Hebrew gives off this, it's trying to convey that this idea of faithfulness or steadfastness, that this here I am means that I'm not going anywhere in this moment or in this situation going yes. forward. There's a steadfastness, a loyalty there, and and God shows it, and then God kind of tests Abraham with, you know, the the you know potential sacrificing of his son, and he he calls to Abraham, and Abraham responds, "Here I am." And then you yeah. have it again with Abraham and Isaac. Isaac kind of displaying some anxiety and some fear about what's going to happen at the top of this mountain and he calls out to his father Abraham and and Abraham says here I am and right. so that that is ingrained in their culture and it, you know then you jump forward to this god of the universe the creator meeting you know th- these enslaved people that just came out of Egypt and they're trying to understand who this god is and and then whenever God tells Moses to tell the people, like, what if they ask me, like, who you are, that, that you know, the, the, the holy name, the ineffable name yeah. is an iteration of Hanuni. I, it's yeah. like, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. So there's yeah. this direct connection between God and Abraham in Hanuni. So here with Jesus, this is Marty's teaching that, we can potentially assume that Jesus was speaking Hebrew or Aramaic. And when he says, you know, I am he, you could argue that he says the same phrase that Abraham said, same phrase that Moses and God said in Exodus. And, you know, that's what made the people fall down in astonishment and awe because their mind go, their minds go back to that story and all those stories in the Torah. And they're like, oh my gosh, like this is the fulfillment of everything that we had hoped for. <laughs> and here yeah. we are like getting ready to arrest him. Like, I don't know. I just, when I heard that teaching, I just was like floored. I'm just like, oh, so yeah. good. Oh, it is. Yeah. And that's, yeah, it's a really, really good connection because, uh, you know, underneath this is just the Greek, but you got to figure, okay, but you're right. He was probably speaking Aramaic. And what, what was it that he actually said? So yeah, I love that. That's cool. Here I am. So yeah. So, I mean, think about what's going on. They're showing up. Jesus and the guys are walking out. Jesus walks forward. Hey, what are you doing? Oh, who are you looking for? Well, we're looking for you. Well, here I am. And they all just fall down bowled over. But what's funny is Jesus, he, he seems to be somewhat unaffected. He just, he just asks them again, who are you looking for? And they answer the same. Well, we're, <laughs> we're looking for you. And Jesus says it again. I am he. They've got who they've come for. And then Jesus uses that to say, listen, since I'm the one you're looking for, you got me. Let these other guys go. And I couldn't help it, Samuel, but how many movies have you seen something like this? All right, you got me. I'm the one you want, so let the others go. Mm-hmm. How many times does that ever work out in the movies? <laughs> Never. No. It's like, it's like an invitation to let no one go, right? But it, Jesus is the one that started it, so there you go, Hollywood. <laughs> anyway, 
And here's Jesus. And again, think about the moment we're at in the story, and he is still acting as their protector. It's something that he just talked about in the middle of his whole farewell address and prayer thing. Though they had failed to even pray for themselves, Jesus is right here, right now, interceding on their behalf. Hey, you got me. Let them go. And then John, he recognizes what's happening here, and he adds something to the story. He says, hey, Jesus, he did this to fulfill something. And John uses that same language that people would use to talk about a prophet. This is to fulfill what was said by the prophet. Jesus uses the same kind of—I'm sorry, John uses the same kind of language, but he says that Jesus is fulfilling not some scripture, not something a prophet said— but something that Jesus himself had spoken earlier in his farewell address, the the prayer part. Maybe, now maybe, John is just noting facts. Hey, Jesus said this, and look here, he did it. Ta-ta! Could be. Or, and we'll never know, but it could be John's way of actually putting Jesus' words on par with either the scriptures or the prophets or whatever, that, that whole phrase, to fulfill what was spoken normally would be by the prophets. So maybe he's putting Jesus on par with all the other prophets that preceded him. And we don't know for sure, but that whole little bit, that's kind of a cool sort of image as well. John, he's pretty tricky. He's a great writer. So it's easy to believe that he'd have been doing something like that. So uh, you got anything else, Samuel? No, I blabbered all kinds just a few minutes ago. So (laughs) it's a good story, right? Oh, yeah. It's fine. I mean, we're finally here. Yeah. So, all right. Well, then let's go on. What do we got? We're looking at Matthew chapter 26, verses 50 to 54. This would include Mark chapter 14, verses 46 and 47. Luke chapter 22, verses 49 to 51. And John verses eight, uh, chapter 18, verses 10 through 12. Now, I'm going to read mostly from Matthew, but I want to read a couple little bits from Luke and John as well. They add little stuff. So here we go. Matthew, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? All right. Jesus speaks a little differently and does something different in Luke 22:51 he says uh, but Jesus said no more of this and he touched his ear and healed him so that's kind of a neat addition and then John lets us know for whatever it's worth the high priest servant he tells us that that servant's name was Malchus John has some familiarity uh, with these people that maybe the others didn't have we'll see that in a minute so anyway, there's the text. So what do we got here? I find this, oh, Samuel, this is so amazing. In this moment, Jesus calls Judas 
friend. Did you catch that when I read it? No, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, friend. Do what you came to do. I just, that just floors me. And you got to wonder, uh, maybe was there a little sarcasm in there? I, I guess that could be. Or maybe maybe there was no sarcasm, but was this maybe a way to, you know, it's like a subtle emphasis that Jesus had never been anything but a friend to Judas, right? That, that sort of perspective. I, or could it be that, you know what, Jesus, it was just an untainted gesture of love in spite of the circumstance, right? It, I mean, it could have been that. We don't really know, but Jesus calls Judas friend while he is betraying him. It's crazy, crazy. So anyway, some of Judas's crowd, they take hold of Jesus, they secure him, and one of Jesus's disciples, I didn't read this, it's in another uh, it's one of the other Gospels. But one of Jesus' disciples asks, Shall we strike with the sword? <laughs> now, to me, I, I, Samuel, remember back during the supper, whether it was a Seder or not doesn't matter, but do you remember when they noted, Oh, hey, look, Jesus, here are two swords. Oh, yeah, that was kind of weird. Right? Yeah. And and Jesus was like, it is enough. And, you know, we've talked like, is, does that mean two is enough swords or that's enough talk about the swords? Or whatever, right? But anyway, apparently they brought at least one of those swords with them. Right? And I mean, you got to think they probably brought them both. Why not? Anyway, Jesus, he didn't even have time to answer. Shall we strike with the sword? Peter goes ahead and does it. He strikes Malchus taking off his ear. Now, a lot of the scholars argue that the the way the Greek under this reads that it's actually only a part of his ear. I don't know how much that matters, but anyway, Peter strikes some or all of his ear is now off. And you got to imagine. Now, remember Samuel, how many people now do we think John has brought with him? Just just a guess. You mean Judas? Oh yeah, what did I say? John Oh, yeah. How many people did Judas bring with him? I mean, the the cohort word means 600. We can't literally probably mean that, So, but it still has to be a big crowd. Yeah. I, I would think it would at least be counted in the tens, like 20, 30, 40, 50, something like that. But it, it could have reached even as high as 100 or 2 or something. Remember, Matthew called it a great crowd. So... Here's Peter, and what are there, 11 of them plus Jesus, right? That's all we really know about. And Peter strikes a guy and takes off his ear. This could have been an ugly moment. Jesus, the disciples, they all could have just been killed right there. I'm sorry, it's Kentucky. Kilt right there, right? Remember, that crowd is substantial. Jesus' crowd, as far as we know, simply is not. So also notice that John is the one who's naming people. His gospel was written much later, and so the fact that John is willing to say, hey, Peter's the one that did this, Malchus was the guy that got his ear taken off, whatever, it could have been that John knew more, or it could have simply been, because his was written so much later, there was nobody left to get in any kind of trouble, so he just went ahead and put the names in. So that's a little side note to keep in mind. 
But anyway, so Peter lops off this guy's ear, and Jesus acts quickly. First, he tells them to stop. Hey, just put the swords away. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. The swords, and I'm adding this in, I think part of the message that we see here is that the swords were to remain a defensive weapon. We talked about that a lot when we made jokes about the swords up in that room where they were having the supper, but it's defensive. And then Jesus reaches out and he heals Malchus's ear. Okay, so this is Jesus trying to de-escalate this whole situation. Now, side note, there are some who speculate that this Malchus guy, he may have been so touched by this moment that he actually provided some of the inside details that we're going to see coming up in the Gospels about the trial uh, and all that kind of stuff for the disciples so that they actually knew what was happening. Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But back to the story, Jesus is de-escalating, and he even takes the time to explain to his disciples, guys, I must drink the cup the Father has given me. Don't you know that I could ask for more than 72,000 angels? That's how many legions he was talking about there. 72,000 angels, more than, right? How else are the scriptures going to be fulfilled unless you guys let me go through this? So, Jesus is really trying to calm this whole thing down, and it appears that Jesus's quick actions work. Now, maybe that was just a natural outcome, or you never know. Maybe even somehow God, the Spirit, whatever, there there was something even supernatural keeping this crowd, this great crowd, this cohort from actually coming down hard on Jesus and the disciples. But anyway, everybody calms down. Jesus's crowd, I'm sorry, Judas's crowd comes, you know, they do what they came to do. They arrest Jesus. In fact, they bind him, and and you might think that this seems a little extreme. I mean, he's cooperating. Hey, I'm the guy. Take me. Leave them alone. However, and I don't know. I think this is interesting. We don't know if any of these people know about this or not, but Samuel, how many times have we read, as we were going through the Gospels, that Jesus has eluded them in the past? It's been a few, right? Mm-hmm. And in those times, we, the reader, I mean, we had, we even had to question, look, is Jesus, is he just extraordinarily sneaky, as in we seem to have underestimated the sneakiness, right? That kind of thing. Or was he actually getting some sort of miraculous help? We, we didn't know. We couldn't tell. So... Maybe with that history in mind, maybe you really can't blame them. They really did need to bind him, all that kind of stuff, because in their mind, maybe maybe they're thinking, we can't show up without him again, but this would assume they kind of knew who he was. They knew some of the story. We don't know. But Jesus is, is I think, he's going to kind of show them how comical their actions actually are, but... Whatever, we'll have to see that as we read further. We got anything here, Samuel? I do. The first is, and I find it remarkable, this detail that you brought up about Jesus being able to de-escalate this situation just because, man, if if we're really treating this like a mob of people and right. let's just assume that most of them are passionate, emotionally charged this is for all the Tolkien lovers out there. I think about 
the Two Towers movie or book whenever at the end when there's the Battle of Helm's Deep and you have very few amount of men and elves versus 10,000 Urukai and um, there's this standoff that's happening and then you have this one old guy that accidentally lets you know an arrow fly and kills one of the Urukai and then that <laughs> sets off you know the dominoes and then it's all right. out war like it's very reasonable to think that Peter drawing his sword and cutting this guy's ear off would have resulted in just an all-out like mosh pit in terms of people just charging and at Jesus and his disciples. And I mean, yeah. he could yeah. have died there. Like that—that's right. how crazy it is. And I don't know. Like I—I I think common evangelical culture treats. Jesus in terms of his disposition as like calm, cool, collected all the time. And I'm not saying that that's not true because the only other time I can recall him being severely animated is whenever he goes into the temple complex where there was a section built for prayer and for like welcoming in like outsiders, Gentiles to be able to experience this God and be able to worship. And they, the, the Jewish people had turned it into a like a marketplace uh, t- tax collectors were there whatever and he flipped all the tables and he was very upset about it so in the same token yeah. I mean the the Hebrew doesn't have punctu- Hebrew slash Greek doesn't have punctuation but like in Luke's version they translate Jesus' statement in 2251 as no more of this exclamation point so I can just imagine like and how surprising it might have been for hit Jesus's disciples and this crowd to see Jesus actually yelling like a- as soon as that instantaneous right. moment moment happens where the sword comes out and then he jumps into action and yells like stop this like, it would right. it, I think it would have taken all those people by surprise because it's just not what they would have expected sure so I don't know if that adds anything to our discussion of this section but I wanted oh, to bring yeah. it up regardless. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, think back. It was just a moment ago when he said, I am he, and bowled them all over. Mm-hmm. Right? So maybe when he says, no more of this. I mean, maybe, you know, we can kind of, in our mind's uh, image, we can actually see, yeah, everybody is listening to every word that he says. You know, I, I don't know. It is. It's, it's, it's a very interesting picture. But yeah, I think it was a very dangerous moment. Yeah. Yeah. The second thing is just more of a fun uh, speculation. Um, when he when Jesus healed Malchus, do you think that regardless of whether it's a portion of his ear or the whole ear that came off, do you think that he healed his ear in terms of reattaching it, or do you think that he just like stopped the bleeding and that was it? Who I am going to go with oh man i don't know because you could imagine he touched his ear and it kind of grew back or he touched his ear and it just quit bleeding and then it was going to be a scar or or he actually picked it up and stuck it back on his head i don't i don't know i'm gonna go with he i'm gonna go with the imagery of reattaching he made it whole again is there is there any uh, anything within Leviticus in terms of like the cleanliness laws that there would be any risk of him becoming 
ceremonially unclean by touching a part of someone's body that had been decapitated? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a good question. I honestly do not know the answer to that. I, I think that the answer is no. And further, I think <laughs> considering what his next few hours are going to be, it definitely doesn't matter. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. It's a good question. The other thing, remember how some scholars speculate that Malchus might, in fact, have been really, really touched by this moment and, you mm-hmm. know, maybe in his own way became somewhat of a disciple or whatever? You could also think that when he touched his ear, Malchus was now truly able to hear mm. in a way that he could not before. But who knows? Whatever. All right. Well, let's see what we got next then. Uh, we're looking at Matthew chapter 26, verses 55 and 56. This lines up with Mark chapter 14, verses 48 to 50. Luke chapter 22, verses 52 to 54. And it's only just that first part of 54. We're having to chop this up in weird ways. But anyway, I'm going to read from Matthew and a tiny bit from Luke. Matthew says this. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then... All the disciples left him and fled. Now, Luke adds one little bit. I just thought it was an interesting phrase. In the middle of while he was talking to the crowds, he says, But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Okay. Interesting stuff in here. So at this point, I mean, think about this. Jesus is now speaking directly to Judas's mob. And basically, he's like, (laughs) okay, really? You needed a crowd this size? You needed swords and clubs? What am I, some sort of notorious robber? I sat in the temple day after day teaching. Why didn't you come get me then? Why didn't you come get me there? And Luke adds something that shows that Jesus, even with his questioning of them and their approach, you know, Jesus really does get what's happening. This is the enemy's hour. This is the power of darkness. And we see it in these people. Of course, they would act this way. The true leading, the true guiding, the direction behind all of what we're seeing in these people is from the enemy, from Satan. And this is how he does things. All of these people, this whole crowd, they're just acting as his stooges. And so, you know, Jesus, he's saying all this stuff. Basically, he's chiding them. But then he makes it clear, and I love this, he makes it clear that, you know what? They're really not the ones in charge. God is. Satan may, in fact, be orchestrating all this. People may be acting you know, under his influence, direction, whatever. The power of darkness may indeed be proving itself formidable right here and right now, but it doesn't matter. God is so above it all, so beyond it all. He's not surprised. God, I mean, to use a a modern term, he's just making lemonade 
out of the lemons that the enemy is throwing at him. It's just not that big of a deal. And so here's the thing. The scriptures are being fulfilled. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list off some interesting ones that you, as a listener, you may want to go read through. It is by no means an exhaustive list. And maybe in some spots that you can't even get away from the, the symmetry or the, the, the figurative speech or whatever. And in others, you might have to look a little harder to see it. But it doesn't matter. Here's some things you might want to go look at. Psalm 22. Awesome. Isaiah 53. Awesome. Zechariah 11. Awesome. Psalm 41. Zechariah 13. Psalm 69. Psalm 34. If you want places to go and read and look, start with those. I'm sure you can find others, but those would be really good ones. But anyway, back to the story. So they've seized Jesus and they begin to lead him away. And all of the disciples do what I believe are two things. A lot of people read that sentence, the disciples left him and fled, and they just sort of hear that as like a redundant thing, you know, whatever. It's, I, I actually think it's two different things. They leave him and they flee. One of these actions, it's, it's kind of concerning their relationship with Jesus. Jesus was their master, their rabbi. When they followed him, he took the place of even their own father. They left him. They abandoned him. They left him to his own fate. The second one, the fleeing, that's an action concerning themselves. We might, I don't know, we might even call it a moment of enlightened self-interest. They wanted to live. They wanted to be free, so they ran away. Now, before we beat up on them too much, let's remember that this is exactly what Jesus wanted. He had told the crowd, hey, I'm the one you want. Let the others go. So, I mean, we're never really going to know everything that was going through their heads, but this had to be just the most, I don't know, crazy, surreal, jarring moment for them. I, I don't even know. And, and you know, as a reader, we're, we're reading this, and all we can do is sit back and hope that they recover from this moment. But... I hope you see where I'm going with they they both left him and fled. And so anyway, that's all I got on that part, Sam. You got anything? People may find these uh, explorative images that I talk about or what comes up in my head is silly, but I, I hope oh, that it... Oh, of course it, they do. No. <laughs> no. I hope that it serves a purpose, but... I, I, it, it struck me when you said that he, you know, before he, sh- you know, reiterates that God's in control and he's kind of doing this chiding thing. Again, I'm just addressing this, con- you know, p- possible misconception that people always think that Jesus is, you know, have you come out against the robber with swords and clubs to capture me <laughs> like very Victorian in manner? But right. I mean, we just we just saw in the previous section where after the whole thing with the sword in the ear, at least in John, it says that the the band of soldiers came, arrested him, and bound him. I mean, and then let's think about the mob. Like, all those people are coming for Jesus, and then they get to a point where they finally seize him and arrest him. What do you think the the crowd is going to do? I would think they're going to start 
shouting. Maybe some are going to be applauding, screaming, yelling. All that's probably happening simultaneously. And in my head, I see Jesus like, you know, as he's being led away with bound hands, I see him almost shouting that statement in Matthew 26 at the top of his lungs uh, so that, you know, he can even just get above the the dull roar of the cr- crowd that is in the midst of him. So, yeah, um, I don't know. I just that to me that adds more emotion, more animation to more humanness to what's going on right now. And instead of it all being so stoic, that maybe what the church has tried to convey to you in the past. I ju- I'm just just giving you another picture to ponder. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, and that that whole that whole scene like the way that you described it as well. Think about what he is, is yelling or shouting or whatever. First of all, you guys are kind of goofy for coming and treating me this way, but just so you know, all of this is just fulfilling the Scriptures. So whatever victory they think that they're gaining, he's letting them know, uh, nope. God's still in control. Well, Samuel, let's do this next little bit. I, it may be the last part we include in this particular episode, but I think it's just amazing. So we are in Mark chapter 14, verses 51 and 52. It says this, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. We got a jaybird in the story. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Now, okay, family show. Sorry I had to say the word naked out loud. No. <laughs> but think about this. Uh, okay, I, let me say this first. Uh, because I'm just being honest. I am telling you, when I was doing my study, I got to this little part right here. And in my mind, I'm going... I don't honestly believe I've ever seen this before. Yeah. When you just read it, I'm like, this is in the Bible? Like, Right. What? Right. Isn't that the strangest thing? I've known, I, I talked to a couple other people about, they had the same response. Now, I know there are going to be a bunch of people who've got, no, I remember that. I've seen that. Of course. That's okay. But isn't it funny that something like this can show up, and as many times as you think you've read something or you've studied or this or that, or whatever, there can still be a thing that pops up and you're going, you know, I didn't even know that was in my Bible. But anyway, Mark, he's adding this strange little story. There's this, this young man. He's unnamed. He's unknown. He's never going to show up again as far as anyone knows. He appears, though, to be a bit braver than the eleven. He actually is following Jesus, like right out in the open. However, (laughs) this young man also appears to have been caught by surprise by all these events. So we don't really know what's going on. Did he happen to be sleeping nearby? He heard the, the rumble of the crowd or something? I don't know. He didn't even take the time or have the time or whatever to properly dress as he went to see what was going on. He just has this linen cloth kind of draped over himself. So for whatever reason, though, he chooses to follow Jesus, follow this crowd. He wants to see what's going on. Did he know him? Was he just curious? I mean, we don't know. But he proves, I think, that the disciples were, at the very least, not stupid for fleeing. (laughs) 
because Judas's crowd turns around and seizes this young man also. Now, it turns out, in the end, it's very fortunate that he wasn't properly clothed because this linen cloth, he could very easily slip from it. He did so, and that is the thing that enabled him to get free and run away. So, you know, again, why? Why is Mark telling us about this young man that we will never hear of again? Okay, simple answer, we don't know, but some speculate that maybe, just maybe, Mark was simply trying to give some honor to this person who actually did sort of step out, be a little bit brave, be a little bit loyal to, uh, more loyal, I guess you would say, than even Jesus's closest friends, his disciples. And maybe, maybe that's what Mark was doing. Uh, Another thought is that, you know, it could also be a way to highlight the disciples' disgraceful behavior. And, you know, again, I think that's a uh, maybe. Uh, Now, just to, to remind you, Mark was a disciple of Peter. Mark wasn't one of the original crowd. And so, you know, who knows? What, what was Mark's point? But anyway, I think, Samuel, we're going to end the, the, the episode here on a naked young man running away. Probably not our best choice, but what are you going to do? I'm surprised that you didn't bring up, since we're in Kentucky, it's naked. Oh, you're right. Ah, I was Caught. Caught. Yeah, naked. <laughs> I did have a couple things, though. Um, do you know culturally, contextually, what this linen cloth would have looked like that w- was about his body? Like, I, 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 I'm not getting a picture of what that article of clothing would have, how it would have been fashioned around someone. Yeah, no, I don't, because at least... and. and Who's to say whether I'm right or wrong about this? But my understanding of the the clothing of the day, the era, the time, that the, like their undergarment, that that closest thing underneath them would have been something that had, you know, something along the lines of a, a neck hole and arm holes kind of a thing. It would have been a a thin layer that sort of laid across them, but but it would have it would have been something more uh, formed. Uh, had actual form to it. This just sounds like literally just a piece of cloth. He's just kind of throwing it around him. I don't know, think of like a toga or something for all I know, <laughs> right? So yeah, I got no idea, Samuel. Gotcha. Um, and then the other thing is, and there's no way to prove this, and you may, I, I don't know your opinion of it, Paul, but I'm sure you've probably crossed some resources that have speculated that in the same way that, like the you know Gospel of John, he writes himself in the, in the story as you know the disciple who whom Jesus loved. I, I've read some stuff that said that this is like Mark's way of writing himself into the story as like this was oh. John Mark's first interaction with Jesus before he became a disciple of Peter. Um, and then this is kind of like the origin stories of how Mark encountered Jesus before becoming a, a disciple of one of the Twelve. Yeah, I've not heard that, but, you know, I couldn't put it past the authors. And it's funny that you mentioned that John does that, because he's going to do that again coming up uh, in the story. But yeah, I don't know. I Maybe. I mean, we're really good at maybe, Samuel. <laughs> <laughs> We have doctorates and maybe. 
That's right. Anything else? No, uh, that, those are the only two. All right. Well, let's let them go. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.